This is the ARC Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Hi and welcome. I'm Peter Terzakian, and it is November 8th, 2018. And I'm Jackie Forrest. Hi, Jackie. What are we talking about today? Well, lots to talk about with the news last evening about oh, the yeah. Keystone XL pipeline facing a setback. So we'll talk all about that. We'll tie that into the extremely large price discounts we're seeing now for Canadian oil and what this decision means on the outlook for that. Yeah, those are two huge topics. And what I'm going to do on somewhat of a related matter, but a bigger picture macro matter, is talk about the divestment movement and particularly the decision by now, I think it's up to at least 10 big European banks not to invest in the oil sands. All right. We we might want to call this the oil sands podcast. The oil sands podcast. All right. Well, let's get going. Yesterday in Montana court, we basically saw a setback for KXL. As you know, this pipeline has been more than 10 years in the making. It's just going to be another chapter in quite a long book It's here. like a big, long soap opera, that's for sure. It has been at least 10 years that right. this is going on. So what was the decision? Well, first of all, you know, what was the case? The um, Remember the presidential permit that Trump issued right yeah. after he got elected? I can still yeah. remember him in the Oval Office signing it, Russ Gerling nearby. Right. Uh, everyone in Canada saw that picture. And especially that dialogue when the president was surprised that they couldn't start building it tomorrow, that there was still yeah. no process here. <laughs> and uh, Russ had to straighten him out on that. But what happened then was uh, in September, not long ago, a lawsuit in Montana, of all places, challenging the president's ability to use an executive order and override Obama's decision. And this judge, Brian Morris, he's called, faulted Trump for that decision and uh, said that the project can't go forward. You got to go back to Obama's decision. Yeah, I mean, we tend to forget that the United States is in some ways quite similar to Canada, where the states have a lot of power individually, much as the provinces do. So regardless of what the commander-in-chief might be doing or the prime minister on this side of the border, there is a large amount of jurisdictional leverage that the states and provinces have. And right. that's what we saw. Well, and, you know, with the TMX decision here in Canada, we had, you know, the approval and now a court found that the approval isn't valid because there were things that were missed. It's, uh, you know, not unique to Canada that courts no. can override these decisions. No. So, and, and these are points of vulnerability for those who oppose things like the pipeline because we thought the ground zero for KXL was in Nebraska. But now it's brought all the way up to the Alberta border, which is Montana. Right. Well, so what are the next steps here? The good news is that Trump has already responded, calling the order a political decision and a disgrace and talking about taking this to the next court of appeal. And so the good news is this is on Trump's radar. It looks like he does want to fight this decision. Or the next tweet of appeal, right? Yeah, we haven't seen a tweet yet. I actually did go check unless it's happened in the last hour. Basically, what we're seeing both in this country and the United States is that the regulatory system has now expanded to include the courts, the judiciary. So, you know, you had in the past the certainty of knowing that a regulatory decision, whether it was yay or nay, was a final decision. And now, over the course of the last couple of years, the vulnerabilities and the uncertainties, more to the point, are now expanded into the judiciary. So now there's two dimensions of uncertainty and all this stuff, which just compounds. Right. And from the pipeline company's perspective, until all these uncertainties are gone, they're not going to want to spend money. And so it's really going to delay these projects. No, no. You know, the trick here, I think not only for companies that are in the Canadian oil and gas industry, both upstream, midstream, downstream, but even the country as a whole, and I've, I've long argued this, is we have to take control of our own destiny. Like here is a decision by some judge we have never heard of 
in Montana. Mr. Brian Morris. Yeah, in a, in a low-density population state that seemingly is inconsequential to this whole thing and is an externality that completely upends the whole risk-return spectrum yet again. And so we cannot be hostage to these sorts of externalities. We have to minimize externalities as much as we can and take control of the situation. Uh, as Canadians, we need mm -hmm. to diversify directly into markets like Asia and others. Okay, so like the TMX, which also had court decisions, but I think it's different. Here we have a government that has some vested interest in the success of this. They're going to get royalties and yeah. tax income and benefits that yeah. flow through to the And government. maybe this is an incident that accentuates the need for urgency in assessing this. I actually think this is a bit of a watershed moment. It's interesting because when we have spoken about market access in the last uh, year, certainly 18 months, is you know KXL doesn't really come up that much. It was all about Trans Mountain, it was all about rail, all about this. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, we get this court ruling, and now it's back on everybody's discussion agenda. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so it just shows that uh, we need to look at things more from a Made in Canada perspective, in my opinion, and get more collaboration and more understanding. And we'll talk a little bit more about what collaboration means maybe when we get to the uh, third item, which is uh, on the perceptions of our industry and how the financial global markets view it. Okay, well, let's talk about today's situation because sure. Keystone XL, you're right, kind of went into the back a little bit. But when we learned that maybe the TMX was getting delayed, then people sort of said, okay, well, KXL is the next big pipeline that's coming. And we're very focused on new pipeline capacity because we have very low prices right now in Canada. We've talked about this before, but just to remind everyone, heavy oil uh, differentials are about $40 per barrel, the difference in the price between oil at WTI mm -hmm. in Cushing and what we're getting here. And when you work out the absolute price right now, it's like $19 a barrel for heavy crude in Canada. Yeah, I, That's some of the lowest pricing we've ever seen, lower than after the financial crisis, lower than the depths of 2016. The, of 2016. Yeah. This is painful. There are many oil sands barrels being produced today for negative dollars. But that's not universal amongst all the oil sands players. No, no. Some that are integrated, that have uh, pipeline capacity to get to markets where they get higher prices, are seeing a better return. Or if they have crude by rail, that they can get their crude to a higher priced market. But the vast majority of heavy oil, I would argue, is seeing prices is like exposed, this. Is That's exposed right. to this, what we would call the spot market for Western Canada Select, which is the marker that these barrels are priced off of. So just, just for the listener's perspective, so, okay, $19 a barrel, ouch, that hurts. But the differential is $40 per barrel right now. It's been as high as 45 Yeah, there was a spot price in the last yeah, few weeks, yeah. even as high as $50 $50 off of that benchmark light barrel in Texas. Right. But the normal differential that we would expect is what? $15. $15. Yeah. Right. So it's literally, you know, basically $25 of lost value here right. to the so, Canadian economy. And by the way, lights are discounted as well. So when we work it all out, you know, we're easily talking like $100 million a day of lost revenue wow. over normal differentials. Wow. wow. So $100 million a day is effectively the amount of money being left on the table by Canadian producers. But somebody's getting that money. Yeah, most of it is uh, U.S. refiners, honestly, yeah. who are buying oh, these crudes at yeah. reduced prices and then selling them at refined product prices that reflect global crude pricing. And it's right. not just U.S. refiners. Canadian refiners are benefiting right. from that as well. Right. I mean, so this is basically like a big transfer payment from Canada to the United States. Is Does that 
Yes, to, yes. I mean, some to... of the Canadian refiners are benefiting from it, but the vast majority of our crude is yeah. going to the U.S. Half of it is sold in the Midwest. So Midwest refiners are doing quite well. And you could see that over the last couple of weeks as some of them have had their uh, quarterly releases talking about the massive profitability they have oh. by getting cheap Canadian uh, yeah. crude oil. I mean, I remember, oh, it wasn't all that long ago, certainly uh, no more than 10 years ago, that refining was just a thin margin, relentlessly dismal business. But today, the refiners, because they can buy so cheap and sell at full world-tied prices, are just making a killing. Yeah, they're having very good results. Right. And so that's, I think, what makes this a little harder for the Canadian industry compared to maybe 2016, yeah. because everyone was getting uh, the same. But today, the Canadian industry is suffering well people around yep. the world in other oil producing jurisdictions are doing pretty well. I will I do want to mention, you know, we do have a bit of a double whammy right now in that we've got these wide differentials, but we've also had some softness in the price of WTI. In fact, WTI is about $13 per barrel lower than it was a month ago. And so the diffs are wide and then the price is coming down for WTI and so it's just you know, making the price kind of step down here for Canadian producers yeah, so, to these low levels. I mean, WTI was in the low 70s, like only like five, six weeks ago, right? Yeah, uh, it was above $70 and, and it, above, it traded under $60 this morning. Under 60 So bucks. we have a five. Uh, so it recovered a little bit, but it was du- a- The double whammy you're talking about is you take now 60 bucks, call it, and then you subtract off of that 40, 41, and that's how you get your 19. That's right. That, that's where the calculation comes yep. in. Okay. So right. um, now in terms of why is WTI softening? Well, more production from Saudi Arabia and Russia. We've got um, concerns about a weakening economic outlook. And now we've learned that these sanctions on Iran may not be as strict as first thought. And uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, OPEC does seem to want to have a role in the oil markets here and keeping prices within a range. And there is an important meeting this weekend where many people think there will be a recommendation to lower the production levels. Is that the full-on OPEC meetings like we're accustomed to? No, that's going to be in December. But this is like a working group meeting in Abu Dhabi, the monitoring committee. And the belief is they're going to make a recommendation that there's some cuts to the production that take effect in December. So if that does happen, I think that will help strengthen and stabilize WTI price. I mean, if the past is an indication, the past being the last time we saw prices sliding from that uh, $70, $75 level, and that's WTI. I mean, Brent is in the 80s. Yeah, Brent's 10 bucks higher. When you fall below 60, then the foreheads start to crease, right? You know, people get concerned and... Uh, I'm sure they're going to be having a lively meeting this weekend. Yes. Yeah. So based on the recent history, I think we will start to see some cuts possibly from that group here. So it doesn't sound all that good. (laughs) But Okay. So this (laughs) is the good news. Let's do the but. uh, Price arbitrages do not last. And there are things that are happening to uh, help Canadian producers. Some of them right now that I think will make a difference over the next few quarters. The biggest thing, and and by the way, we did write on our blog site uh, two posts about this, and we'll add them to the show notes for a bit more detail. Um, But the first thing that's going to happen here is oil sands supply reductions. Like we're oversupplying the market. We don't have any takeaway capacity, you know, that's close to what we are supplying. And so we're going to see some reductions in the production. So so what's happening is is that there's far too much oil being produced in Western Canada. The pipeline capacity is insufficient to take it away. The storage levels are all to the max. Yeah, we're getting really full storage tanks. So this is why... 
you get these massive price discounts. It's it's like the blowout sale at the uh, at the corner department store. That's right. When you're producing more than you have places to put it and no one's buying it, then right. you start to get the market right. saying, slow down, it sends a signal for a very low price, $19 a barrel for yeah, heavy oil. Yeah. And that's the kind of price that makes people um, right. not economic and start to slow down their production. Right. So when you say arbitrage, just, just to be clear to our listeners, an arbitrage is when you have a very low price or differential price to a different market. So we have a very low price as compared to what you can get it for on the Gulf Coast of Texas. That's right. And so you can't have these extremely wide arbitrages, as they're called, or price differences, because entrepreneurs and others eventually figure out how to get it to the Gulf Coast. And it's also a price signal to say, as you said, whoa, put on the brakes, slow down the production, shut it in, do whatever. And we're seeing some of that. How much? Okay. So this week we've had announcements or between the last few weeks, actually, from CNRL, Synovus, Baytex, Meg, Devon, Athabasca oil sands yesterday. And at this point, there's about 110,000 barrels a day of curtailments. Now, maybe that seems like a small number, but by our estimate, the market is about 200,000 barrels a day oversupplied. It's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that we're producing... 4.3 4.3 million barrels a day out of Western Canada, and this 200,000 barrels oh, yeah. is causing all this problem. But when you're oversupplied, it doesn't matter to what, yeah. what it's amount. Always at the mar- it's always at the margin. So what we're seeing is that the pain is starting to set in, and we're starting to get shut in because, as you said, some of these producers are not even breaking even. Yeah, l- let's talk about that. So when you have a price of, of $19 a barrel for Western Canadian Select, you know, a barrel of Western Canadian Select is actually... bitumen, oil sense bitumen, and 30% this light condensate, which is almost like a gasoline product that they Mm -hmm. put in because the bitumen is actually too thick to flow down the pipeline. It's like a blood thinner, like a blood thinner. It is like a blood thinner. (laughs) And so you get it to the point where it's light enough to be able to be pumped down a pipeline. Now, for each barrel you send down the pipeline, it costs you almost $19 a barrel for this condensate. So you're not you're buying condensate, sticking it in a barrel, and selling the combined product right. for the same price. Right. So you're not covering your operating costs, which tend to be in the range of nine dollars a barrel. You're not paying your transportation costs, your GNA. Like you're you're so losing money. So that's why. Okay, yeah. now we can understand what basically the U.S. refiner is getting the core product for free. That's it. It's pretty much going down right. the pipeline right. for free. You're and just paying for the condensate. Translates to that hundred plus million bucks a day. Uh, that we talked about earlier. You know, as I, as I reflect on this, I mean, this is a full-on price war here in Canada. I mean, this is a market share battle. It's a market share battle amongst these oil sands players for pipe capacity. I mean, on one hand, we know all the factors. We talked about it earlier about why pipelines can't get built, right? But put that aside because that's the takeaway side to the demand. Mm-hmm. On the supply side, now it's one big shoving match to try and get into these pipes. That's and right. And the companies that have advantage are those that already have existing capacity on pipes and rail. That's right. They have fully integrated operations. In other words, they have their own refineries. They have their own very sophisticated supply chains. And if you have that, you're actually not suffering nearly as much as the other. And when you see situations like this, I mean, this is just business, right? I mean, it, it's basically a price war. It is. And, you know, we, we've had sort of an interesting dialogue over the last couple of weeks in the Canadian industry where some producers are shutting in. Others are actually talking about increasing their production yeah. uh, because they're not subject to these prices, uh, whether they have, you know, they have refineries that give them a higher margin or they have like takeaway yeah. capacity. And it's really difficult to watch. It's very painful. We haven't seen the end of it. 
but it's really what happens when there is oversupply and um, there's going to be forced uh, shut-ins, and we're seeing it. And in some ways, the market fixes these problems faster than any other dynamic. Right. right. I mean, and already like uh, in the first week right. of November, we've got 100,000 barrels a day of curtailments, and I, I don't think we're done yet. Yeah. I think there's going to be more curtailments. Um, and, and the other fix is, is growing crude by rail, and we're already seeing signs that crude by rail is increasing yeah. out of the province. And, you know, a, I mean, I, I was uh, talking with somebody, you were probably too, that uh, the rail was going to take up to two years to get the locomotives, but when you have 100 million bucks a day on the table, you snap a few fingers and the rail locomotives are now potentially coming much faster. Yes, uh, and I, I do think we're going to see, and we even see it from some of the company's um, quarterly updates, their mm-hmm. predictions in terms of where rail is going. Like currently, we're moving 230,000 barrels a day as of August, crude by rail from Canada into the United yeah. States. Synovus is talking about 100,000 barrels a day more rail because they've signed some commitments with the railway companies. Mm-hmm. And Imperial made an announcement uh, as well that they're going to really start ramping up their rail, they expect to be 90,000 barrels a day higher than they are right now in the first quarter of 2019. Right. So there you go. There's a couple hundred thousand barrels a day of crude by rail that we don't have today. Yeah. That's going to make a big difference. I mean, in many ways, I, I hate to say this, but the wider the differential, the lower the absolute price, the faster these sorts of things get addressed. And that's what we're seeing. It's not going to be uh, over in the next few weeks, I don't think. But let's tell you what, when, the, when you're getting 19 bucks and you're losing money, it's, it's going to happen faster than we probably think. Right. And the rail is an important part of the, the strategy yeah. here. It has been slow, but I think there's a lot of motivation for rail. When you think about how much this oil is worth at the Gulf Coast, we're at near $20 a barrel here in Western Canada. At the Gulf Coast, you know, they're under $70 or so right now, but yeah. there's a big arb there. I did want to just one more thing before we leave rail. You know, we, we talked at the beginning about the potential for the Keystone XL to be delayed and the TMX looks like it possibly could be delayed too. Rail can grow a lot and can be an option here long term for Western Canada. And if you think about the environmental impact statement that the State Department wrote in 2014, That's which actually this judge had fault with. Uh, that well, the Montana judge. The Montana judge had fault with. But one of the big conclusions of that was if you had a scenario with no new pipes out of Western Canada it would have a very small impact on the volumes or the pricing long-term because well, crude by rail would scale up, become efficient, and uh, things would be all well, the same. And that's so. what's happening. So, I mean, is this really an environmental win? As you know, and many of the environmental groups were celebrating the demise potentially of Keystone because of this judge's ruling, but is this really a win? I mean, if you look at the chart of Canadian heavy oil flowing into the United States, it keeps going up. Right. It yes. keeps going up. And... It will continue to go up. That's right. You have the demands in the Gulf Coast. You have the supply here. And uh, you can't have a $50 a barrel difference between these two markets. Crude by rail will fill that gap and we will get a lot of crude by rail. So the volume goes up. It's just that we don't get paid for it, which is a real travesty in this situation. Uh, And potentially there's more. There's this imperial announcement. Right. Let's talk about that. So in light of all of this, surprisingly, this week, we find out that Imperial Oil is giving a green light to a $2.6 billion investment in the oil sands. First greenfield to be sanctioned since 2013 when Fort Hill's mine was sanctioned. So we haven't had a sanction for five years, and this was the week to do it here in Canada. Yeah, it's amazing. But you got to remember that Imperial are contrarians. I still remember when they sanctioned Curl Oil Sands Mine in May of 2009, kind of in the depths of the financial crisis, when the price of oil had fallen from $100 down to 30 They thought that was the time to sanction a project. So they're, they're being contrarians mm-hmm. again. You know, this is a project that would add 
76,000 barrels a day would start construction at the end of this year and be completed in 2022. Yeah, it's, it's a sign of confidence here in, in the oil sands. But make no mistake, I mean, Imperial has got that sophisticated supply chain, don't they? They do. You know, they're they're very unique. So they're not like a lot of oil sands players. They have refinery operations. Some of the oil they have goes to refineries. Uh, they also have pipe capacity to the Gulf Coast. They have a large rail terminal. And so they're not really seeing the impact of the low prices uh, yeah. to the extent that, that the rest of the market yeah. is. And, and so this yeah. is why the previous comment where it's not really going to stop the volume of oil sands going to the U.S., that's, That's right. Yeah, because you're going to get crude by rail, and they have yeah. refineries I mean, in the U.S. Crude by rail, I, I tend to just think of it as a, what is crude by rail? Crude by rail is a pipeline on wheels. That's what it is. Yeah. It's a big fat pipeline on wheels, and it can take a lot. Like, what does a typical unit train take? Uh, well, around like, 60,000 barrels a day in that range. And uh, they, or Imperial Oil, has a 210,000 barrel a day rail capacity. And they're not moving that sure. today, but that's the potential. And I, I do expect over the next few years, they'll hit that maximum, if not a mm -hmm. lot sooner, yeah. um, because they have that capacity in place. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit about the price tag, $2.6 When you work that out in terms of the cost per flowing barrel, it's uh, about half of the price tag that you would have spent back in 2014. Wow. It's very cheap. Um, and I think translates, you know, into that kind of less than $50 WTI I mean, this speaks break to the, the learning curve effects of all the money that has been spent in the region over the course of the last 10 years. The innovation that we're seeing, not only on the process side, but actually even on the product side in terms of reduction of greenhouse gas intensity. Right. And and so a couple of things, and I don't know specifically about the Imperial Project, but you look at other operators and they talk about post-downturn, how they've designed their well pads very differently, a lot less steel and equipment, you know, drilling longer laterals, way more efficient facility design. And so that's a big part of it. Then there's been the deflation in terms of things cost a little bit less than sure. they used to because of the downturn. Mm -hmm. So that's one piece. Imperial's reporting a 25% lower GHG intensity compared to the typical project. Well, that's pretty good compared to where they were. That's right. And so, you know, this idea that oil sands can get better, it's the use of these solvents is going to make uh, this much lower carbon intensity. I don't think it's going to be the same as like the mining projects. We're actually are on the average crude. They're already on the average. Yeah. Yeah. The new yeah. mining projects. Right. Right. But still, this is a great step change. And ITRUS actually just did a report that forecasts GHG emissions for the industry going out to 2030 and think that on average, the industry could improve its emissions 16 to 23%. More. Yeah. yeah. Well, and so this project sort of shows that that yeah. is possible. So if you're in the mid-range, you're basically at the same as, uh, you know, with some of the oil fields in the United States and many other parts of the world are producing that. The other thing here that's interesting with this Imperial project is that, of course, Imperial self-finances. Right. They don't. Right. They, they can self-finance internally with their own cash flow and stuff. But many other companies have to rely on external financing coming from banks and bank syndicates in the form of either uh, raising equity or debt. And moving on to our third and final topic, which is that of understanding the mindset of these banks, particularly the ones in Europe, who over the last 18 months, I think there's 10 banks that have in one form or another said they will no longer finance four things. One is um, oil sands projects, uh, the transportation systems that move them, uh, in other words, pipelines. Some of them will not even finance uh, oil coming from the shales, including Permian in the United States or others. And finally, anything in the Arctic. And so those are the four criteria. Now, not all 10 banks are basically putting a sanction against all those four things, but all of them are saying no oil sands. 
Right. That's a consistent. That's a consistent too, thing. is that's probably pretty consistent. Yeah. So we have, uh, you know, Rabble, Bank, ING, Paribas, Credit Agricole, et cetera, et cetera. All of these, uh, all of these banks have not. And so I was uh, moderating a session this past week at the Haskane School of Business event, which was sponsored by Progress Energy International Speaker Series. And anyway, the, dis- the discussion on stage came to this subject and I, I asked the guest who was from Europe, I said, well, you know, what is it that our industry can do to basically overturn what I call these sanctions? You know, sanction means you're not going to have anything to do with these projects. Like, <laughs> even if we say got GHG emissions down to zero, would you reverse your investment decision? And basically the answer was uh, a cautious no. Uh, because of the damage done with all the visuals and and so on, right? Well, and and, and I got to sit in on that session. And the other point he made, it was kind of interesting, is, you know, the balance sheet of the bank is only so big. We want to fund the transition to the lower carbon future. We need more money to go towards clean tech and new types of energy. And there's just only so much room on the balance sheet for fossil fuels. And we're not going to support every kind of fossil fuel. They're not going to support every kind of fossil fuel. But, but, you know, let's just take the portion that still does go to fossil fuels because many of these European banks will still finance the North Sea or who knows. I'm just pulling countries out of offshore Brazil, offering debt uh, and, and syndication and so on and so forth. And so why is it that those projects are not sanctioned and ours are? Now, right, especially if we right. can get our carbon intensity close to theirs, right. which right. is looking like that's possible. Yeah. Why wouldn't we have a chance to get back in the game when we can prove that our products are equal in terms of their greenhouse gas footprint? Because the narrative has completely been hijacked. <laughs> it's like a freight train, if you pardon that rail. <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it's just, it's off the rails. The narrative is off the rails, right? We Here we are in Canada, we have uh, some of the tightest, if not the tightest, regulatory regime in the world. We are making these massive gains in productivity, cost reduction, and through cost reduction, GHG emissions reduction on every incremental new barrel we bring on. Yet the narrative hasn't shifted from 10 years ago. So whose fault, I mean, I'm not one to point fingers, but like, we got to take control of the narrative. Where's the the issue lie? And I think the issue lies in our own hands as the industry, the provinces, the country as a whole has to basically rein in this narrative because we continue to be vilified, uh, as we saw even on Twitter, you know, with this Keystone Mm -hmm. XL decision, as being, you know, evil producers of products that the world continues to consume at ridiculous rates. And that's a whole other uh, issue we've talked about in the past. But there's really no dividend being paid to us for the improvements we're making. Yes. It was pretty clear from your discussion that even if you were to get to zero GHG, the oil sand still has some branding that uh, the bank doesn't want to associate itself with. I I don't believe that, by the way. I think that that could change. And I think we need to take control of that narrative, show them that data. And, um, you know, there will be banks out there that will support that. Maybe not everyone in Europe. Sure. Yeah, no, not all of them. But uh, we have a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of work to do. And I'm hopeful that it is marshalling events, you know, significant wake-up calls like what we saw last night like the differentials being so wide, 
that actually wake us up and say, okay, we got to take control of the situation. Yeah. Sometimes it's got to get bad before it gets yeah. better, yeah. right? So good. Well, I think we've covered a lot of ground today on our Oil Sands podcast. We have. Uh, Oil Sands and Pipelines. Thank you for joining us on our podcast today. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. <laughs>